Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. I am joined by a good friend and colleague, Cindy Adams Harrison. Thanks for joining us today, Cindy. Oh, my pleasure, Arden. It's just great to be with you. Thank you. So by way of background for our viewers today, Cindy is a licensed social worker and has a master's in education and has a specialty in performance coaching that she applies both techniques she learned from the sports world into business. She also is the managing director of the Center for Private Business Owners at PKF O'Connor Davies Families Advisory Services. So Cindy, my first question is, what the heck is a performance coach? You know, what jumps to mind for me is that character from Succession. I quote this show too many times, but Wendy um, um, from Succession, who is coaching all the managers at the hedge fund about how they can be better, be stronger. You know, is that the definition or, or what is it and when do you use it? Well, my experience came in a very odd way because I came as a sports psychologist. I did all my doctoral work um, and really wanted to follow through. When I was coaching, I'm a previous figure skater, competitive figure skater. And one of the things I noticed when I was working with my kids on the ice was that some kids would work really, really hard and fall apart in front of judges and other kids would barely show up to practice and go out in front of judges and just shine like nobody's business. So I wanted to figure out what is that magic recipe that allows someone to follow through on all their efforts. And so my avenue was going through studying sports psychology. So working with individuals, teams to achieve their determined goals, whatever that might be. That I got sort of hijacked into the world of family business consulting um, and, and the ability to apply not only my clinical skills, but those of performance, which sports psychology is grounded in, into the world of business is what happened. So um, it's a kind of an interesting path. It's certainly an interesting mix. And I'm going to start with the sports psychology side. So are all athletes, you know, eligible or appropriate for uh, sports psychology coaching? Is it when folks are, you know, is it a preventative service, like to get people better prepared, as you say, in front of judges? Or is it, you know, does it have applications when people are struggling either with actual performance or with the psychology behind, you know, competition? That's a great question. And certainly it's to be preemptive, to be proactive. Everything about sport is being proactive, being prepared. And so ideally you would want anyone to be working on the mental side of their game as well as the physical technical side of their performance. So the mental emotional side is considerably important for any athlete who wants to perform at a high level. So absolutely I'd rather be on that side. Very oftentimes that doesn't happen necessarily. And so we see someone who might be stumbling in, in terms of anxiety, could be a lot of other wellness issues that might be going on for an athlete, especially today with how complicated things have 
become versus COVID. There's so much backlash that has happened in the athletic world from that and sort of regaining equilibrium for a lot of these, these student athletes, especially. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, hopefully they come and prepare the mental side of their game just as much as the physical, but certainly when athletes struggle, there's a place for, for any kind of coaching performance. And when you think about athletes, whether it's at the student level or professionally who are working towards very high level goals or very competitive and experts in their field or, or high performers in their field, you know, are there characteristics when somebody hits a stumbling block, they're not performing as well as they should, that make them, you know, better able to accept the process and move on from it versus candidate, you know, folks who really kind of shuts them down and, and maybe they leave or they stop they stop participating in whatever sport that they were involved with. So there, there is a place for intrinsic motivation in terms of extrinsic motivation, which comes into play when someone is passionate about what they're doing and it's coming from within them versus external forces that may be influencing their thoughts, um, their preparation for performance, it, it can um, really go a number of different directions. And I often find that a lot of times someone becomes very good at sport as a distraction, perhaps from a lot of distress they're facing. And all of a sudden they begin doing a sport which they become very good at, and it is an escape from some of the dysfunction that they may be facing. They get really good at it. Sooner or later, some of those issues may resurface and begin to become obstacles in an athlete's performance. So it's a really interesting dynamic, whether it's an absence of desire or passion, which can very much happen and become obsolete for an athlete, or it could be other issues historically that begin to resurface in terms of confidence, depression, a number of different things can begin to get triggered along the way as well, obviously. Yeah. Well, you touch on an issue around the, the passion piece and, and what it brings to mind for me is thinking about, especially with student athletes, you know, folks who are younger and have been pushed by their family members to go down a certain path. Have you had examples of that in your practice where you know that to your point, the motivation isn't coming intrinsically, it's from an outside source. And and how do you manage that if you've got a very powerful parent who's sort of got their hopes and dreams riding on this individual, but the individual is maybe not quite as committed to the path that their, their family's hoping they'd stay on? Um, oftentimes that's the case, especially um, in youth sport, you see it all the time where you'll have young athletes, especially these days where kids get just so very busy and, you know, it's one sport after another and parents live vicariously through their child's efforts. And so, you know, when their child does well, then it's some reflection on them that they're good enough parents or whatever the case may be, right? And so usually that has a time frame or a length of time where a child begins to push back it could be behaviorally it could be in a number of different ways it could be psychosomatic and they start to feel ill they don't want to go to practice anymore they're you know and a lot of these kids it's real i mean they're tired um so you know some of that is it's not coming from that intrinsic place it is an extrinsic 
aspect that is affecting their desire and could be injury. Injury oftentimes mm -hmm. um, will create a situation where kids get very, you know, sad and disenfranchised from the sport. You know, they're sitting on the bench or they're watching and they're not participating. So it, it could be a number of, of different pieces, but certainly to watch for, is it my child or my teenager that's really enjoying this or is it me too much? So. I think it's a great point. I mean, I, I remember, and I can't remember the name of the documentary, but it was three professional athletes who talked about their intrinsic motivation. Wayne Gretzky was one of them, and he talked about getting on the ice and that it wasn't his father pushing him out the door with a hockey stick, that he just naturally right. went to the local ice rink and practiced for two hours in the morning. And it just strikes me, you know, I'm, I'm around suburban parents and soccer through family members and the and basketball. And I, I always say to my parents, like, I just can't believe the level of intensity that there is with many folks who not necessarily all these kids are going to play even at the collegiate level, never mind, possibly not even in high school, but the, the level of, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's admirable parents who are very committed traveling all over the state to support their kids in this endeavor. But I often wonder, to your point, is it on behalf of the the child because they've really shown an interest in this or is it really the parents sort of living out a dream that they have yeah it's 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 very often you see you see this happen in youth sport all the time and kids may happen to get as i mentioned earlier you know really good at something and so you know that happens before 10 11 and then all of a sudden abstract thought comes in ego comes into play they begin to realize that their friend is getting as good as they were or better and that begins to really affect a child's interest in sport so there, there there are a number of different factors that can come into play and i think the most important thing is to realize if it's not coming from your child's heart and they're not in it in terms of all different aspects of who they are as a, as a person then we need to reconsider what is happening with them so talk to me about how that background translates into the work that you're doing now with families and family, family businesses. And I'd love an example of where these techniques have been important with a client that you've worked with. So I was lucky to get involved in the world of family business consulting many, many years ago, um, just by accident, actually. And um, the, my colleague recognized that obviously I was clinically trained. So understanding family dynamics and also the performance aspect was a huge plus in terms of, you know, business is a, is a performance arena, just as sport is. So all of these things transferred very nicely. When you have a business and or family organization, family business, you've got relationships that are embedded genetically and biologically, generation after generation after generation, that's pretty intense, a little more intense than what we might look at in terms of a, a sport athletic team. So um, businesses also, so you have relationships that need to come together, techniques, tactics that need to all come together to get to a certain level of performance, which is revenue generation for most, um, legacy building. And, and so, all of these things come into play. So it was an easy transition for me and 
two of my colleagues that pulled me into the uh, world of family business consulting appreciated a multidisciplinary approach to any business success story, meaning you've got someone who can understand the clinical relationships at the same time, understand performance dynamics that are going to allow someone to business success to achieve the success, the success they're so looking for, whether it's adding value to a business or an intra-family succession or an outright sale eventually, uh, which, which happens for many folks. And when you think about the families that you've worked with, you know, is there one that comes to mind that you felt like you had a particularly successful outcome with? I mean, there's, thank goodness, there's been a lot. <laughs> Let's hope. I wouldn't really be in business that long. <laughs> but there's been many, many, many. And I think some of the, um, you know, I think some of the most rewarding are the generational family succession. I was working with a client out in Wyoming, a very large uh, telephone company, actually, family business, fifth generation family business. And we went through third, fourth, and fifth generation successions over 10 years. Um, so it's preparing next gen for leadership at the same time, preparing the generation that is serving in an authority role to understand what the transition is all about, what it's about for them, what it's about for potentially their children and senior key leadership management in the business and getting everybody on the same page. And that's not always easy given different generations and timelines so um but you know i think helping people appreciate and understand where the other person is coming from the dynamics of the generation that could be sitting in the authority position um the dynamics that go along with the next gen and trying to prepare them for leadership positions everyone you know communication is key so helping people understand each other, communicate effectively. There are specific dynamics that go along with an intra-family succession process that need to be paid attention to. There are emotions, there are feelings, there's loss, there's excitement. There's a lot of different things that go on, not to mention creating business growth. What are all mm -hmm. the technical aspects that must come into play? Thank God I have a lot of partners I can work with to address those issues as well. So it's it can be very complicated. Well, it certainly sounds like it can be. And I guess one of my questions is, I would imagine, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you're getting paid typically from the owner of the business, the, the patriarch or the matriarch. Um, is that is that accurate or am I assuming that? Actually, is that, that is a really good question because okay. In the way that I approach it and what I have been taught that has been successful is the business is the client. So, and the reason for that is when the business is the client and, you know, oftentimes I'll be sitting at a table, I'll put a chair up to the table and, you know, family members, it could be key senior management as well. But this is, we're going to pay attention to this chair at the table because they have a seat at this table and really the business health, if we're not paying attention to business health, then if the family has conflict and the business implodes, chances of truly being able to help the family heal disappears. So yeah. the needs of the business, best business practices have to be paid attention to for a number of reasons, keeps the business safe, keeps the family safe. Mm -hmm. I guess 
I, that's actually a great distinction. And I think I love the idea of the chair being there because I think while everybody would say that's the goal, I think it gets lost oftentimes in family business situations with emotions, with previous patterns of relationships in the family system. You know, you always did this, you always favored this person. It's very easy for those dynamics to overwhelm a family and make make it harder, frankly, to make progress. I guess one common yeah. dynamic that that we've been privy to, and it's certainly been portrayed in the media, you know, I can reference succession again, but in other stories, <laughs> is the very kind of domineering slash successful patriarch who's looking at his children, po possibly grandchildren, nephews as less um, sophisticated, less able to bring the business. And, and that may be his perception. It may be the reality. It could be a combination. It really depends on the scenario. Um, but, but what do you do in those circumstances? You know, I think even if the business is paying for the services, at the end of the day, I always feel like, gosh, they must have a, ver a voice that can drown out almost anyone else in the room, making it challenging to bring some of those other voices up in the conversation and make the job of the consultant quite difficult. Well, I mean, we have to remember, again, going back to the, the sort of sport analogy is that someone has dedicated their life to building a business, unless it was a second or third generation, but it's less likely that someone would have the same passion as the original founder and owner of, of a business. So their identity is all wrapped up, their ego, yeah. their social identity, their community identity is all wrapped up in this business. So for them to think that anyone else can do it exactly the way they have is an error, number one. And number two, unfortunately, because the ego is so identified with the business, that next generation oftentimes doesn't have a chance to identify, doesn't want to necessarily identify. They've got other passions, other things they want to do, but they've been hijacked by family relationships to become involved in the family business. And so sure. there are a lot of competing interests to continue a family business legacy. So again, conversation is critical. A lot of times, you know, parents don't necessarily listen to what their children are saying because they've already got an idea of what they want to happen. So we've got to pause for a minute. We've got to pull in the ability, perhaps through facilitation, to be heard. And once that happens, a lot of doors can open up. So Cindy, you touched on something that I think is such an important point, which is folks who have founded something, and I can say this as a founder of a much smaller business than the scale that you're often working with, but you know, my name is on the door, you believe you can do things better than anybody, and so much of your identity is wrapped up. Talk to me about examples of transitions that you've witnessed. You know, have you seen either a specific example or trends with folks who have have said it's time to move on? And have there been characteristics that have had people who've done that more gracefully than others? Because I think, as I think about particularly, not to generalize, but male patriarchs who have established a business, you know, as they start to get older into their 60s, 70s, 80s, they may acknowledge, I don't want to work as much. And they almost, because it took so much work to get them to where they are, they almost don't have something mm -hmm. else to go into. Have you seen that in your practice? Right. And have you seen folks who've done that better or worse than others? 
Well, absolutely. And so one of the key aspects or interventions that happen is to make sure that we're addressing the owner issues, quote, um, and, and what that can be is, look, when we start thinking about what am I going to do with this business, it's very traumatic oftentimes. There's a loss associated with that. And oftentimes people aren't prepared. They don't do the work to think ahead. Okay, what could a next chapter be like for me? People are living longer. And it's also been shown in research that the longer you hold on to a business, as you approach 70s and even get into your 80s, it's much more difficult to transition than when you're younger in your 50s and 60s and you start, it's not that you have to, I don't, I never use the word retirement. There's no such word as retirement, is what is going to be next. And there's so many things that get put on a back burner by so many owners that have created businesses that it's like, what would you like to do next? There's a next. You know, there is something next. You don't have to play golf for the rest of your life or, you know, right off into the sunset. There's something that you may need to think about, create an inventory of what you'd like to do and move forward with. So that conversation has to happen as part of the transition process. I'm sure the younger generations are thrilled if you're leading it and proactive and getting the person to think about it sooner versus later. It's, it's always nice to have that sort of outsider facilitator there to yes. create neutrality within the conversation. Absolutely. Well, yeah. You don't have the agenda of, I want dad to move on so I can get to X or I can take over Y. You're coming in more as a party to say, let's look at the holistic needs of the business. And by the way, this is, this is part of the plan. This is something we have to think about. Exactly. You know, without sharing, obviously, client names or specifics, is there a case that you can describe that gives us a sense of what you learned from it? You know, one of the cases that whether it's a good or a, or a not so great outcome that you was a professional milestone for you in terms of your development. Uh, wow, that's a great question. Um, I think the, a client situation that changed me in many ways positively um, was again, this telephone company, fifth generation, um, the gentleman that was actually, he was a second generation, but he was the um, patriarch of five children who all went into the business at one point. Um, and I think he, he, oh my gosh, Howard probably passed away at 98, 99 years old. And, um, but they were out in Wyoming and it's a, he was a rancher. And he was the epitome of Americana in terms of building what you believe in. Um, he went through every decade that we can, you know, look back on. And I remember, I remember he would come into his office for years and years and years after his sons had taken over the business. And I'm like, Howard, how come you keep coming in here? You know, and because they didn't change his office, he would be up on the ranch with the, you know, all the cattle and everything. And, and um, he goes, Cindy, because he would look through the mail, he would look through the mail every single day. And he goes, I know exactly what's going on. This is a few years ago. I know exactly what's going on when I go through the mail of this business. He would know receivables. He would know any type of anything that was happening. And I thought that was very clever. And he always 
continued to maintain his role with all employees, even though he wasn't in the day-to-day -day weeds, but he kept a very humble uh, approach to staying involved. And I, th I think probably his humble approach is my biggest takeaway. Um, and very successful, they are still a family business today. One of the, probably the only in, in telephony out there, yeah. I love that, I love that. What a great legacy to leave and, and a way to make it easier for the people coming behind you to feel totally empowered to take over. So Cindy, you know, my, my last question is on the personal side. Is there any, you've had such a diverse career. It sounds like you've worked with some extraordinary individuals, whether it's Howard or people in the sports world. Is there any part of your history, if you mm -hmm. had the chance to go back and rewrite it, that you would? No, never. Every, every, that. even though I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, if people told me today, I'd be working for an accounting firm, creating a center for privately owned business owners, um, I'd probably tell them they're crazy or working for a wealth management firm as I did a number of years ago. Um, every step along the way has created an opportunity for me to serve people. And I think my very first textbook when I was getting my master's degree was the helping profession. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I guess that's what I am. I'm a helper. And so to me, it doesn't matter who I'm sitting across the table with or next to. It's that if I have an opportunity to guide, to allow people to talk out loud, whatever it might be, and that I'm trained, I mean, that's helpful. Um, it, it's just a joy. So I would never in a million years have rewritten anything because my path has been extraordinary and I'm just so grateful for every opportunity I get to be helpful. I love that. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Cindy. We appreciate your oh, candor, your expertise and your stories. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Arden. It's been a joy. Thank you. Of course. And thanks to all our listeners. If you're so inclined, please give us a positive rating on whatever platform you use to watch or listen to the podcast. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.